Well, pull up a chair and pour yourself a cup of coffee. It's time to sit down with Pastor Mike Fabares for a chat about a burning question you might have on your mind. It's time for us to Ask Pastor Mike, right now on Focal Point. Welcome to another Q&A session with Pastor Mike Fabares here on Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Have you ever heard of a red-letter Christian? These folks believe the issues Jesus speaks about in the New Testament, indicated by red ink, should be prioritized over everything else. Some people even rationalize that unless Jesus explicitly prohibits something himself, it's not our concern. But is this the correct approach to reading and interpreting Scripture? Well, let's join Pastor Mike now and Focal Point's Executive Director, Jay Wharton, in the pastor's study for a deeper look. Jay? Thank you, Dave. I am here with Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike, today we have a question that I have been getting a lot lately. A listener was told that Paul contradicts Jesus and we shouldn't even be reading him. So if Jesus didn't say it, then it means nothing. That's what these people are saying. So what is going on with this kind of thinking? Well, I can't imagine we have too many folks that listen regularly that uh, have that view, but I know it is a view that is floating around out there. As a matter of fact, one group has even uh, given themselves a a name in the last, um, I don't know, it's been several years now. Um, They call themselves the Red Letter Christians, the Red Letter Movement has really joined together forces of a lot of folks, kind of the spillover from the emergent church, if you remember that movement, uh, kind of the Brian McLarens and Jim Wallace's and Tony Campolo's of of Christianity, and uh, even some Catholics have joined in on this. Um, But yeah, this is the kind of reductionistic approach to the Bible, uh, which isn't anything new in a sense that there's always seems to be a group of folks that divert from biblical orthodoxy by saying we can find a canon within the canon. You can find a a group of authoritative writings within the authoritative writings, but we just don't take it all. We're going to take the part we like, and it seems very convenient to draw borders around the words of Christ. And I can say, and I think this goes without any contestment, I mean, it it can hardly be contested that people that have really been drawn to this have been drawn to this through the hot-button issues of our culture. In other words, everyone likes to say, I'd like to be a Christian, but I certainly don't don't want to be a narrow-minded person that you know has to be now anti-abortion and anti-homosexuality. So hopefully if I can just stick to the words of Christ, because he didn't seem to say anything about those topics, then I'll be fine. I can just be a, a red-letter Christian. And, and that, that I think, it just sums up the, the movement. That's the basics of it. So do these people also reject the Old Testament? Well, yeah. The reading that I've done from these authors so often want to say that the Old Testament um, is—sometimes it's just dismissed out of hand as it's filled with all kinds of terrible things and genocide. And uh, when you start quoting passages about, say, our sexual ethics and homosexuality, they'll say, well, right next to that you have passages about, you know, you can't uh, touch, you know, pig flesh, and so, you know, you can't even play football, obviously. I mean— it's silly things. The, the 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 connection 
uh, that is often um, blurred, I should say that the lines that are blurred so often with folks is that, you know, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, whether it's the dietary laws or the clean and unclean ceremonies of the Old Testament, uh, they, they just can't seem to separate those, which you clearly can separate in the Scripture. There's not hard at all to do, but they won't do that, and so they reject so much of the Old Testament, like uh, Marcionism and the old, you know, the the early heresy of, of rejecting the Old Testament that God, as I kind of jokingly say on the broadcast, you know, it was mean in the Old Testament. He took a nap in the intertestamental period, woke up feeling a lot better in the New Testament. That That's clearly heresy. I jokingly say that, but it's it's a sad thing when people take the Old Testament and don't see the same God of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And you can try and make an argument about this by saying, well, I don't like the ceremonies and you don't keep those. And I some moral rules I don't like that are very clear in the Old Testament. I don't like those. So let's just get rid of the Old Testament. And you know, yeah, it's it's reductionistic. It is taking the Bible and trying to piece out a part that I can live with. And if I can kind of imagine Jesus as kind of a copacetic, cool, with it, hip guy that would never be, you know, against uh, a quote-unquote women's, woman's right to choose or gay marriage or whatever it might be, well, then I'll go with him. And, you know, even most of these people don't study very much, it seems. Maybe the leaders do, but the followers don't seem to study much what the red letters actually said, because I think you can find... Uh, uh, plenty of consistency between Christ and what he said about fulfilling the Old Testament and, of course, what he promised about his apostles coming to uh, to extend this new covenant revelation to a place where we would have the fullness of God's uh, revelation to us, and that's what we preach on this program every single day. Doesn't Jesus affirm the Old Testament? He quotes it numerous times, so wouldn't we accept that? How do they yeah. talk around that? Well, yeah, you know, when I read the writings, and I don't read them all the time, but when I have read these folks that have this approach to kind of cutting up the Scripture, um, you know, they, they dismiss so often sections of the Bible they don't like, and, and sometimes they don't even engage in a logical, forthright argument. They just simply say, come on, doesn't common sense say that you don't want to be like that? And they're sticking their finger in the air as so often they do to, to kind of check what the pulse of our culture is. And if you look at the accelerated pace with which the sexual ethic, for instance, in our country has changed, I mean, you're going to be changing your view constantly. You're going to constantly try to take passages that you don't like, and you're going to get a smaller and smaller group of scriptures that you're going to say, well, I'll count these authoritative. There's plenty that Jesus said, for instance, about hell. And most of these folks do not believe in a literal hell, and Jesus spoke so much about that. So they even have to take the red letters and start to cut it up. And yet Jesus said that he came affirming the Old Testament. He came fulfilling the Old Testament. He came quoting the Old Testament. He came saying not one jot or tittle, not one little seraph or yo that the Hebrew letters of the Old Testament is going to go away until it's all been accomplished. And he quotes it authoritatively, and so does the Apostle Paul, to speak of the, the connection between the Apostle Paul and Jesus or the rest of the apostles in the New Testament. They're quoting the Old Testament as morally authoritative. And by that, I mean we learn about God, and it should be taught in a way that we understand the distinction between the ceremonial law, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, for instance, saying that circumcision doesn't mean anything, right? It doesn't matter. Circumcision, uncircumcision. And then he turns around and quotes the law about muzzling the ox and saying, you should know that the workers among you should be paid, just like Jesus reiterated the principle and how the Old Testament codifies the principle by, you know, talking about oxen. And Paul says, is it about oxen that he's giving us this instruction? No, it's, it's written down for us. So much of what is taught in the Scripture ties together Old Testament, the teachings of Christ, and the New 
covenant concepts that are being taught by the apostles in the rest of the New Testament. Would you say that even in the temptation of Christ in the desert, he was using the Old Testament, he quotes it a couple of times there, sure. to strengthen himself, to feed himself, to help him get through what he was getting through there? Yeah, absolutely. Everything that Jesus taught about the Scripture is exactly the view that we should have of Scripture. He didn't think it was put together by editors. He would talk about Moses and David and uh, Isaiah. I mean, these were the kind kinds of, of references that show us his high view of Scripture, that as it's presented, it is to be taken, that the intention of these authors is what we are to understand being their message as God speaks through them. Uh, you know, just quoting to a group today, uh, two passages from Hebrews and two passages from Acts, where the connection is made that it is the Holy Spirit that speaks through David in this psalm, or the Holy Spirit that is speaking through Isaiah in that passage. Uh, the Bible is clear that it is God's codified, inscripturated revelation to mankind, and that is a picture that is bought throughout the Bible by the writers themselves, by Jesus as he affirms it, by the apostles as they continue that. Uh, they hold up the Old Testament scriptures, and then they quote each other, and they clearly talk about the fact that they're fulfilling the very things that Jesus promised in the Upper Room Discourse. I mean, think about what he said in John chapters 14 uh, through 16 about the fact that, you know, he promised that he's going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to call to mind the things that Jesus taught, and that they're going to be given this revelation to put into writing, and it would be the the gospel, this, this truth that is once for all delivered to the saints, and we are today continuing to exegete that and exposit that on programs just like this so that we can get that word out to as many people as possible. It has authoritative uh, bearing on everything that we think. Everything will be judged by God's word. One day he's going to open the books and we will be judged, not just the books of the deeds that we've committed, but the books that showed us what our deeds ought to be. And the most important thing that he's called us to do, to do, to do the work of him who sent him, to quote Jesus, is to believe on Christ, is to put our trust in him. So the Bible is the authoritative word. It's not our culture, it's not our gut, it's not the visceral reactions we have to what we read. It is what has been given to us through the apostles and prophets. So let's jump to the New Testament and this notion that Paul contradicts Jesus. What's going on with that? Well, again, if you have in Scripture something you don't like, you've got to cut it out. And if there's something there that Jesus said, but he didn't say it in a way maybe that Paul says, and using words like homosexuality, for instance, well then, you know, I can say Jesus has the same view uh, that, that my culture has on homosexuality. Well, they're not looking very closely, though, at what Jesus actually taught. I mean, when Jesus teaches on issues of, of marriage, male and female, uh, he's saying in Matthew 19, the same thing that's being said in Leviticus chapter 18 or Genesis chapter 1 or anywhere throughout the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul is saying the same things. Whether it's the Apostle Paul, it doesn't just have to be him. It could be, you know, any New Testament writer that deals with the issues of our sexual ethics. This is the kind of thing that just takes a serious view of Scripture so that you sit down, look at these passages side by side, and see that 
when something is not stated in one part of the Bible or by one biblical author, and you see it stated by another, it doesn't mean that, that because one is silent on the topic and the other one addresses it forthrightly, that somehow we have a contradiction. Not the case at all. It's like the Gospels. We have that all the time. We can have a lengthy description of something Jesus taught in, a, in the same historical setting that we have a short, brief summary of in another Gospel, and it doesn't mean they contradict each other. It just means one has just a section or a small synopsis of what was said, and the other one gives us much more detail. This happens all the time, and so it is in Scripture. If I want to know how to live my Christian life, I can't just go to one biblical book. I can't go to one biblical author. I've got to realize that God has spoken in all 66 books of the Bible, and I need to take them very carefully, interpret Scripture with Scripture, and realize that this is a consolidated whole. And I think the more you look at it that way, the more you see it, and you no longer have to try to force things to harmonize. They are harmonized. God is the God who is behind these prophetic writers. It is the Holy Spirit who's speaking not only through David in the Psalms or Isaiah in the Old Testament, he's speaking through Peter, he's speaking through Luke, he's speaking through John, he's speaking through Paul, and these are the things that have been given to us and have held up you know, for 2,000 years of analyze, analysis rather, of, of Christians and scholars, and, and, and you know, the books that I'm sitting here looking at right now as I record this are filled with the kind of careful analysis that unfortunately isn't going on when people say, yeah, these guys are talking about red letter. I like that red letter approach to Christianity because I can picture Jesus being really cool and, you know, he would never be, you know, against the social issues that these seemingly fundamentalist Bible-thumping Christians are against. They don't take the word seriously. They don't get into the details of the word. They don't even try to seek to see how passages fit together, whether it's Romans versus the Gospel of John or, you know, Old Testament authors like Jeremiah. They, they, they're not doing that kind of work, and I hate to say it, but it, it really is a product of our culture. If you're not grounded in the knowledge and the data that's in the Bible, you end up being so easily swayed into somebody that's going to give you a completely, you know, false view of this Bible that most people haven't even read from cover to cover. I mean, think about that. And I often ask that question when I'm dealing with people. You know, you're making real authoritative, sweeping, declarative statements about the Bible. I just want to ask, I mean, have you read it? Have you read it from cover to cover? How many times have you gone through it? Have you gone through it carefully and taken notes as you've read it? I mean, most people haven't even read this book that they're claiming to dismiss or they have, I mean, even the red letters. I mean, how many people have really read every single thing that Jesus said thoughtfully, carefully, and taken their notebook out and taken notes on it and really carefully tried to analyze everything that is recorded that Jesus said? Soon we'll be back to the Robert Funk approach of this, uh, you know, this Jesus seminar where we just sit around in a room and vote like they did with those, you know, those red uh, balls or pebbles or whatever they were, where they just said, well, I think this is a statement Jesus probably would have said. I don't think that's a statement Jesus would have said. I know that's a statement Jesus never would have said. That has been the approach that many people have taken, and I think that's where we're at today with so much of this debate about, you know, what is authoritative in the Bible. We're trying to judge everything by our our gut, our tummies telling us, I don't think this could be true. Well, truth has hard edges. I say it all the time. We have to take the truth for what it is, and it's been held up under the intense scrutiny of scholars and Bible students for centuries, and now people are dismissing it because they're too busy to read it and they want to rush to you know watch another movie on Netflix or or you know get the latest uh, you know Xbox game or whatever, and they don't have time to be the kinds of students because they're so busy entertaining themselves. I, I hate to get off on that, Jay, but I mean there's just <laughs> not enough good, uh, thoughtful 
research on the Bible itself. And I think that's why I love our, our Focal Point listeners so much, because I know we hear from them so often. They they love to think beneath the surface of what's just, you know, often thrown out as Christian platitudes and, and niceties. We need to be good students of the Word, rightly handling it, and uh, not reduce it to our favorite set of verses, you know, and it ends up being five or six passages we happen to like about loving our neighbor as ourselves or whatever else it might be. So if we're talking to someone who believes this way, how as Christians should we respond? I mean, what's the best line of discussion that we should be taking with them? Yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, when I think about people that do that kind of reductionistic, uh, you know, kind of excising parts of the Bible they don't like, I I guess I want to get them to slow down and really consider what they're doing. Uh, it's almost, I don't want to get personal about it, but it's, it's almost like me preparing a sermon. I might take 20 hours to put a very carefully crafted sermon together based on a very careful exegesis of a passage, and it might take me, you know, 25 hours to put something like that together, and someone sits down and in, you know, 25 seconds, they're willing to dismiss out of hand something that I've said. They've given it really no thought. They haven't, I mean, they haven't really even grappled with it, and, and I think that's what's so often the case, and I want to call people's attention to the fact that, hey, before you take this view of saying that, uh, you know, I like just these few passages that Jesus said, and I I imagine that everything that the apostles said is just, it's all wrong. It shouldn't be there. I'm just going to dismiss it as as wrong-headed. I mean, you've really got to take a look at everything that Jesus said and consider whether or not you have room to take this view of the rest of Scripture. I mean, can you really live as the arbiter of all of these things, and are you doing it based on this Jesus you say you hold in high esteem, or this God that you say is the sovereign of the universe? We need to, you know, get people to think about what they're doing. It's it's easy theoretically to dismiss it all, but one day you'll be standing before God, and you will be there in the unmitigated presence of the glorious creator of the universe, and you're going to have to, you know, justify your position of why is it that you didn't read this book and take it seriously? Every part of it that Jesus said he takes seriously every part of it. Why, why did you why did you feel like you could so so easily and 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 without any kind of, of consequence dismiss it out of hand? I want them to think big. I want them to think about their creator. I want them to think about this God that they they're slicing up his book. And that that's not a great, concise, compact answer for you, Jay, but I do think you've got to get people to think bigger and and more carefully before they dismiss it. It'd be like a, a contract that they're about to just kind of cut sections out of and toss. I don't like that. I don't like that. You know, there's an old Marx Brothers gag about them looking at a contract and ripping out parts of it that they don't like until they get down to, uh, you know, a little sliver of the contract that they like. It's, and that's what we're doing to the Bible. And it's a sad thing. It's a, it's a tragic thing. And it will be, you know, a regrettable thing come the day we meet this God. Because some of this takes some careful study, it seems like most of these kinds of discussions take place online, social media, Mm. where you don't have the opportunity to have an in-depth discussion. Should we even engage in those kinds of discussions? Most of the time, it's not real fruitful. I was asked yesterday about that passage when Jesus said, don't cast your pearl before swine, and it seems so harsh, and I try to tie it to so often when Jesus gives that kind of instruction to his uh, his emissaries, his evangelists, and he says, listen, if you're going to be in a town and they're going to reject you, uh, you know, then you move on. You, you kick your dust off your sandals and you move to the next town, as the Apostle Paul did when, you know, he had from synagogue to synagogue, people just rejecting him. He said, fine, you know what, I'm going to move on to the Gentiles and we'll give this message to them. And I'm just saying, most of this kind of 
battle that goes on and the trolling on the internet where people are just going to throw rocks when you're standing up for what the Bible says, a lot of it's not fruitful. A lot of it gets your ire up and you get angry and it's not helpful for you. So, you know, the Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly, right? Lest he be wise in his own eyes. And there's a time for that. I want to correct you. If you're open to it and I want to, I want to make clear, I want to defend the faith. But the next verse says, right, don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? right? Lest, you, lest you be like him. And the problem is you can just degenerate into a wrestling match in the mud of name-calling and anger and the vitriol that just goes nowhere. And in that case, I would say, yeah, you got to know when to walk away from a, from, a, from a debate. And online, when it's, you know, one-liners and it's bumper sticker theology, and, uh, and I say that because there's not a lot of real good reason debate that takes place, you know, it's... it's, it's it's whoever wins is the one who throws in the, the best one-liner. It's like the difference between political debates that took place, you know, 100, 100 years ago or 150 years ago and the political debates that go on today. You know, it's about zingers and one-liners and, and turns of phrases versus really reasoned, careful debates about your political theory and my political theory. Well, we're getting down to things that matter way more than politics. This is theology. And so I think we need to think twice about whether or not just throwing a few phrases out or trying to get one-liners in is really going to win the win the argument and and a lot of that is useless i think so maybe the first thing that they should do is if it's local they get together and maybe sit down and look at some of these things in a little more depth with somebody you can encourage that kind of conversation first sure. yeah but i want to remind them that so often when people are they're they're fighting against the fact that they want as paul said to the galatians they want christ but they don't want to suffer in other words, I want to stand with Christ, but if I just didn't stand for this part of what Christ and his apostles taught, then I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't have to go through all this harsh pushback from the culture. And and so I think when I'm dealing with someone, if they're willing to talk, I think we sit down and really talk about why am I fighting this so much? Right? Why is it? Am I afraid of my reputation? You know, am I really willing to not only hold my position about what God has clearly taught to the place of getting, you know, people mad at me? Am I willing to to die for it? You know, think about uh, Martin Luther back in, during the Reformation, you know, there he was, his life was on, on the line, and he was willing to say, you know, I, unless I'm persuaded by, by, by Scripture and, and, and reason in this, if I, you can't logically show me in Scripture, uh, then, then here I stand, you know, and, and God help me, if I have to, to go to my death, I'm going to stand firm on the Word. And you see that perspective in the Scriptures, and Jesus told us, right, if we love the, the, the applause of men, then we're like the Pharisees. And Paul lived that out when he said, you know, if I were trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of, of, of Christ, but I am a servant of Christ, and that means that it really doesn't matter what people think. And he ends that book in Galatians 6 by saying, the world's been crucified to me and I to it. In other words, it really doesn't matter what the world thinks, right? My, uh, or the opinion, rather, of the world about me it doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is whether or not I'm going to hear from Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. So I, I want to talk about why is it that you are you know, fighting this so hard and get down to the core reasons. You got to be willing to stand with Christ even if it costs. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. I trust that this will help those that are dealing with this kind of aberrant thinking out there. And if you have a question for Ask Pastor Mike, you can go on to focalpointradio.org and submit it on our Ask Pastor Mike page. You're listening to Ask Pastor Mike on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Our topic today is Red Letter Christians. And you can hear it again at focalpointradio.org. 
Standing with Christ isn't always easy, especially when the things required of us are, well, downright countercultural in today's climate of political correctness. But as you immerse yourself in God's Word through Focal Point, there's no doubt God will be speaking into your heart, shaping your thoughts, and challenging you to greater maturity all year long. Well, we know our topic today is sensitive, and some uncomfortable emotions may have been stirred up, but here at Focal Point, we're committed to teaching exactly what the Bible says, not softening the truth to make it more palatable. If you believe in the value of our straightforward style of Bible teaching, would you give today so we can continue getting the gospel message out to people who need to hear the radical truth? Through your generosity, we can deliver Pastor Mike's expositional teaching by internet, podcast, app, and hundreds of radio stations nationwide. When you give a gift to Focal Point today, we'll say thanks by sending you a copy of a classic work from the late author Warren Wearsby called The Bumps Are What You Climb On, Encouragement for the Difficult Days. We can't prevent crises from happening, but we can make the most of them. The meditations in this 30-day devotional will show you how to trust in God's promises, reap the benefits of forgiveness, find contentment, and add joy to your life. Request your copy online when you go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, wishing you a great weekend. We'll meet you back here for more Bible teaching with Pastor Mike Fabares next time on Focal Point. program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.